Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the National Library of Australia. My name is Nathan Woolley. I'm the curator of the exhibition Festive Empire, Life in China, 1644 to 1911, which is now on display downstairs in the gallery. Um, as we begin proceedings this evening, I'd just like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land. I thank their elders past and present for caring for this land that we are now privileged to call home. Tonight is the fourth lecture in a series that the National Library is presenting in partnership with the Australian National University's Australian Centre on China and the World as part of the public programs of the exhibition Festival Empire. Now, if you've attended any of the earlier lectures in this series, you will know that we do like to thank the partners who have supported the exhibition. This is because the exhibition and its public programs wouldn't have been possible without the support of these partners. So firstly, we're very grateful to the National Library of China, who have very kindly agreed to loan um, to us a number of their treasures. Um, I'd also like to note that many of the items we have currently downstairs in the gallery have never been outside China before. So we're very privileged. We'd also like to thank the generosity of our other partners. These other partners include Shell in Australia, The Seven Network, Wonder One, Optus Singtel, Huawei, Cathay Pacific, and TFE Hotels. Our event partners are the ANU's Australian Centre on China and the World and Asia Society Australia. Our government partners include the federal government through the National Collecting Institution's Touring Outreach Program and the Australia China Council, and also the ATT government through Visit Canberra. Tonight, Dr Natalie Kurler will unpack for us the workings of Chinese medicine, focusing on shifts in that tradition up until the Qing Dynasty. Natalie is currently a postdoctoral fellow at the Australian Centre on China and the World at the Australian National University. Originally from Germany, Natalie has studied at the School of Oriental and African Studies in London and also at Harvard University, as well as at institutions in Lhasa, Beijing and Taipei. Her research interests include the history of humour and fluids in China and the history of Chinese medicine more broadly, as well as the interactions of Chinese medicine with other medical traditions. She also works on Sino-Tibetan Buddhist relations, and in her research, she uses materials in Chinese, Manchu, Sanskrit, and Tibetan. She's currently working on a book on the history of matter in Chinese medicine. Um, just to let you know, we're going to have time for questions at the end, so I'll ask you to hold your questions until that time. But at the moment, please join me in welcoming Natalie Kurla to speak to us this evening. Thank you very much. much for your kind introduction and thanks for thanks thank everybody for coming um, so is this on there's no light ah, yes. okay sorry so um, yes so you have read correctly um, my talk really is about phlegm so I <laughs> I will be talking about phlegm tonight, but I hope that this talk will perhaps make you think that phlegm uh, is not really what you think it is now, and that in the process of rethinking phlegm, you'll also learn something about the history of Chinese medicine. So when you think of phlegm, you probably think of snot, right? Or it's... it's <laughs> 
it's it, in 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 the in the Greek uh, tradition, um, it's a cold humor that's related to water, and um, yeah, it's it's that kind of thing. So, um, but if uh, the phlegm, the word phlegm comes from the Greek word phlegma, and the etymology of this word is actually from from uh, burning. So phlegm is really, even though it was a cold humor in the Greek tradition, it is also related to fire. And if you say out the, 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 the word phlegm, you can hear that it's, it's related to flame. Um, so interestingly, in, in, in the Chinese, um, um, the Chinese term phlegm um, also is related to fire. These, um, these are two fires um, joined together. And um, uh, I, I, we don't really know why this is the case, because in, 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 in the Chinese tr uh, tradition as well, phlegm is originally a cold humor related to water. So this is, it, it, it's, a it's a puzzle. Um, but we know this, this much that in the later Chinese tradition, phlegm did become associated with fire. Um, in other words, um, over the last 200 years, phlegm completely changed its qualities from being a, hot, a cold humor that was associated with water to a hot humor that was associated with fire. Um, so this brings me to the topic of this talk, fluid trajectories. Um, we'll follow the story of phlegm um, uh, throughout time. Uh, space, and also inside the body. So by that I mean um, we are, we are going to look at um, changing conceptions of phlegm uh, over time and the possible travel of um, Greek and um, uh, is, uh, Persian and Indian ideas about phlegm from India and uh, Persia to China. And we also will look at um, flows of matter inside the body, uh, or the, the physiology of Chinese medicine. So, um, no. phlegm was among the most important causes of, um, of illness in Chinese medicine during the Qing dynasty. Uh, it was a really common symptom of many diseases. It was responsible for illnesses as diverse as indigestion, strokes, infections, inflammations, cough, tuberculosis, water retention, edema, arthritis, vertigo, anxiety, uh, and madness, just to name a few of the things that <laughs> phlegm could be and was thought to be responsible for. And um, by the way, this, this, this Qing period um, uh, conception holds true also for contemporary Chinese um, medicine, which is known as TCM. Um, but so the, the curious thing about phlegm is that if we go back to the Yellow Emperor, the classic of the Yellow Emperor, which is uh, the classic of Chinese medicine on which um, all the later tradition is based, um, it was compiled uh, around 100 BCE. Um, so if we go back to that classic, we find that the term phlegm doesn't, is not there. It doesn't exist. Um, so the super pathogen, which was dominated, completely dominated the discourse of, of, of medicine in the Qing period and also today, uh, apparently did not 
pose any problems in classical Chinese medicine. It didn't exist. So if it wasn't already obvious from these kind of symptoms that I've just um, enumerated, um, that phlegm isn't exactly the stuff that comes out of our nose, um, then it should be now. For I think it's highly unlikely that the Chinese in 100 BCE did not suffer from a common cold. <laughs> so um, this shows two things. Um, phlegm was something entirely different from what we, we think it is now. And um, despite the, the widespread preconception of traditional me Chinese medicine as something timeless and unchanging, um, it shows that there are some fundamental traditions that happen in this tradition over the last 2,000 years. Um, so actually, that fundamental changes should happen in a living tradition of medical practice um, is quite obvious. It would be much more surprising if it didn't change in a time frame of no less than 2,000 years. However, um, this, this change is something that is quite often forgotten or obscured as many contemporary practitioners claim that they're still exactly following the kind of medicine that was laid out in the classics for them. So, for example, if your Chinese doctor diagnoses you with hot phlegm and prescribes you cooling medicines, you, you know that he cannot be following the earliest classic because in the earliest classic, phlegm didn't exist and it was a cold humor. In, in when it came about and only became associated with fi fire much later on. So um, what then is phlegm and how did it change so much? But first, um, let's take a step back. Um, what's the conception of the body in Chinese medicine? Um, when you hear about Chinese medicine, you probably the first thing you're going to hear about is qi. So it's usually translated as vital breath or energy, but it can also be understood as a fluid, um, a kind of vital sap that flows around the body. Um, qi is the underlying substance out of which our bodies, but also the world, is made. It's, we can explain it as the kind of intersubjective stuff that makes us communicate and resonate with the world around us and with other people. So like, for, for example, why do we feel that somebody in the same room is angry even without looking at them um, or looking at their posture? It's, it's because we can feel their chi. Um, the, the fact that chi is, is, is everywhere and is flowing around the body in, in also makes possible the energetic um, therapies of Chinese medicine, such as acupuncture and moxibustion. So if you do something in one part of the body, um, um, you can affect an entirely different part of the body. Um, so for example, in this image, um, you see um, a chi conduit, uh, which goes from the tip of the, the hand up to the lungs. And it's, it's, it's the same conduit illustrated in two different, in two different images. Um, this is, a, is another conduit which goes from, from the foot up to the head. So, um, and, these, and, and, these, and these dots would be where you, where you could manipulate um, 
the qi inside the body with either um, uh, acupuncture needles or with um, moxibustion. So mo moxibustion is when you burn um, a, a kind of mugwort um, uh, on the body or on the tip of an acupuncture needle. That's actually a very um, well-known, quite humorous in, uh, illustra illustration of, of, of such a treatment. Um, the flow of, of qi inside the body in the conduit it, um, and the resulting connectedness of all the parts of the body also makes possible the diagnostic method of pulse taking um, in, in Chinese medicine, where illness in any location of the body um, can be diagnosed in one single spot, the, the wrist. So that's illustrated here. And actually what the doctors are feeling is not uh, the pulse, it's the qi. Um, the embeddedness of every small location in the greater flow of qi leads Chinese medicine to analyze illness not in a small, localized fashion, but place it in the context of its wider surroundings of the body, but also um, to the outside world. So, for example, in this image, um, this image illustrates a tumor at the back of the neck. So that's not how we would nowadays go about illustrating a tumor, but at that time, it was in that tradition, it's um, uh, important to show the, the whole of the surrounding. Um, actually, um, it's, it's, it's not only important what's going on inside the body, but it's also important how the body relates to the outside world. Um, so you can see this in, in, in all of these images that, that I've just shown you, that um, the, the clothes the clothes that these people are wearing, they're swaying in the wind, um, which is, um, depicts the action of the outside chi on, onto the body, the inside, in the inside chi, in, inside the body. Um, so in other words, the uh, ancient Chinese body was a body that was quite open to the world and, and connected with it. Um, this openness to... Um, of the body to the outside world posed a danger. Uh, it meant that noxious intruders, what we would nowadays call pathogens from the outside world, could enter the body quite easily and progress deeper and deeper inside the body. It is true that inside and outside the body, all is chi. Uh, we, and, we and the world are made from the same stuff, but there is good chi and there's bad chi. Good qi is the kind of qi that is in sync with the seasons and the time when everything happens as it is supposed to happen. Um, bad qi is when things happen out of order, such as untimely winds, untimely cold, untimely heat. Um, excessive mo moisture, blistering dryness, and so on. All these would be outside qi that is, could affect the body in, in, in a harmful way. So the most common kinds of bad qi for the body were um, wind and cold. In fact, even nowadays, harmed by wind is, is a very common expression in, in Chinese. It's it kind of equal to our catching a cold. And um, one of the most important treatises in, in, in 
in Chinese medicine is the classic of cold damage, which described how the body is uh, harmed by cold. Um, wind and cold typically enter the body by way of open pores. This is why it is um, dangerous to sit in a draft after you have just taken a bath or exercising. That's actually uh, this, this, the same in the European um, um, conception of the body. Interestingly, in the, in, in the US it's not. Um, I, I have a lot of arguments with um, my American friends um, because they don't think it's dangerous to go outside um, after taking a bath. So I, I, I would be very interested to learn about this um, perception of the body in Australia. Um, so what happens when these um, de uh, bad chi enter the body? Uh, they, they, these external ex intruders uh, pro um, progressively go deeper and deeper inside the body, from skin to the flesh to the bones and so on, until they finally lodge in, in, in the marrow. Um, and this is what this image illustrates. So it, 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 it's, it's, it, it shows that there is different layers uh, by which the external intruder progresses. And um, the invasion of the body functioned according to uh, logic of warfare. The sooner one could expel this intruder, the better were the prospects for cure. Um, once the illness reached the innermost part of the body, one was basically bound to die. Um, so this is why in Chinese medicine there's also this, 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 this saying that a mediocre doctor um, cures an illness after it has started to show symptoms, but the superior doctor treats the illness before it occurs. In order to prevent the in invasion of the body by foreign intruders, it needed to be filled with vitality, which is called, or fullness, it's called in, in, in Chinese. If the body was brimming with this vitality, this is the, the inner, it's the good chi of the body, then there was no way for these external intruders to get in, inside the body. They would just ward it off. Um, the opposite of good fullness or being the state of being filled with vitality would be to be empty, and that would make one susceptible to intrusions by these foreign invaders. So in order to maintain this kind of healthy fullness um, inside the body, it was important that the chi inside the body should be in flow. The term that are often used for desirable flow are shun and tong. And being in the flow is, is, is really incredibly important in all of Chinese culture. And so these terms have connotations that reach far beyond the medical realm. If things go well, they are smooth and they connect. And if they, if they don't, um, then they get stuck. And that's when, when, when things go bad. Um, in the body, this translates into um, stagnations. When things don't circulate, they stagnate. And when they stagnate, they um, form lumps. And we can think about these lumps. These uh, Lumps can be anything at that time because there, were, there was no cancer theory and there was no theory of tissues. So, so lumps are actually something really serious that could, could 
lead to, to, to death. It wouldn't just be inflammations. It could be ulcers or all kinds of things. So, so we can understand this, 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 that, they were, that they were a pretty serious issue. Um, no. Generally speaking, in, in early Chinese medicine, these stagnations and, and, and blockages were formed by outside intruders into the body. That is the kind of bad qi that we've just been talking about, such as, as, as cold or wind. Um, and the proper flow of inside qi could uh, nourish the body and could um, help dissolve these, that could, could, could not only nourish the body and, and fill it with vitality, but it could also help dissolve these stagnation by these outside invaders. Um, so basically the point is things have to be in flow and then um, things are, tend to be going well. Um, so how did phlegm fit into the scheme of things? The interesting thing about phlegm is that in contrast to all the intruders that we have just been talking about, such as wind, cold, heat, moisture, and so on, um, with uh, these intruders, they were threatening the body from without, whereas phlegm is a body fluid, and it's, it's a product of the body itself, um, and it was threatening the body from within. <laughs> this is something that was quite unheard of in early, in, early um, in classical Chinese medicine. Intruders would tend to be um, things that came from the outside. In other words, um, we, can, we can say that the trajectory of phlegm illustrates the development of the conception of an internal pathogen in Chinese medicine. Um, sorry, too, I'm too fast. So let's look at the beginning of, of phlegm. It first appeared in China around two, 200 AD, and at that time, it had nothing to do with snot and nothing, with, nothing to do with infections of the respiratory tract or with coughing. Instead, it denoted a watery substance which um, slosh, was sloshing around the abdomen. It, in other words, it, it denoted a kind of indigestion. And at this very earliest point, um, phlegm was also not really a body fluid. It could be a fluid that one has drunk and couldn't digest. So it's still something that kind of came from the outside but uh, gets retained inside the body. This, this phlegm, as I've mentioned before, was related to water and to cold. It's a, it's a, it's a cold um, um, humor. It could sometimes it, it could manifest as a cold spot in on one's back, in, in, in the size of a hand. That that would be a very common symptom of, of phlegm. So, 400 years later, in the first etiological treatise in the history of Chinese medicine, which is called Origins and Symptoms of All Diseases, uh, phlegm was defined for the first time as. Um, body fluid. 
So the, 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 the quality of phlegm also changed. It changed from, from being a watery substance that was sloshing around in the abdomen to being a dense fluid that caused swellings, lumps, and coagulations. It could also be like glue. The location of phlegm equally changed. It started to move around the body and tended to stagnate above the diaphragm. So I don't know about, about you, um, but if you're not a singer or playing a wind instrument, you probably ha don't have a good sense of your diaphragm. Um, the diaphragm in this picture is, um, sorry, it, mm? is, is, is depicted here. It's, that, it's this line. And um, this picture shows that the diaphragm must, must have been something very important for Chinese medicine at that time because many other things in the body are left out, but this line seems to be just as important as the boundaries to the outside world. In fact, the word diaphragm, the etymology of the word diaphragm um, is partition. And in Chinese, it's the same. Uh, diaphragm is also related to um, a, a part partition, a dividing line. If you, if, you, if you glance at uh, anatomical illustrations from the Western medical tradition, you, they confirm for us that the diaphragm really is a, quite a solid obstacle inside the body. And so if it, 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 it's, it separated the hypochondrium from the gas, um, gastric cavity. So why was it so important? Because people were worried about these fluids inside the body not being able to circulate. So they knew that there was a dividing line there, there which could stop the fluids and they, they would stagnate. And that was dangerous because then the phlegm would build up on top of the diaphragm. And um, that was also the case in, 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 in the Greek tradition as well as in the Chinese tradition. In any case, uh, by 600 AD, we begin to see a substance that resembles phlegm as we think about it now. And this, is very, this time is very interesting because um, phlegm played a very, very important role in Indian medicine. Um, and in the concepts of phlegm were introduced to China during the introduction of Buddhism, which started around 100 AD. And by around 600 AD, people started to be quite familiar with these texts. So by the time when we get the first definition of phlegm, it, it, the, the time when we get the first definition of phlegm is also the time when um, Buddhist texts start to take root in China. So this suggests, we cannot say this for sure, but it, 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 it makes it very likely that 
the concept of phlegm as an internal pathogen was influenced by Indian ideas that traveled into China by way of um, the Silk Road with Buddhist text. So to recap what we've just um, talked about, um, in this early time, at the, the early period of phlegm, phlegm was sloshing around in the abdomen. It was um, sub subjectively perceived as stagnation and fullness. It could be palpated as lumps that formed due to stagnation of fluids. And the interesting thing is that these lumps, they were described in purely mechanical terms. So things stagnated, but the only thing happened would be that they coagulated, but they didn't go bad, they didn't putrefy. This is only about um, obstructions. Phlegm was also, as, we, as I've been repeating, a cold humor and was associated with water. That didn't change. So another 600 years later, um, the, the medical scholar Chen Yen set out to clarify another thing about phlegm, and that is its causation. So in this early period that we've just been talking about, it wasn't really clear what caused phlegm other than things stagnated inside the body. But this scholar um, wrote a treatise in which he defined three causes, he made three causes re responsible for all kinds of disease. Um, and these are outer causes, inner causes, and neither inner nor outer causes. <laughs> um, so, so then he takes, for each, each illness, he would take the illness and explain it in terms of outer, inner, neither outer nor inner. And for phlegm, outer causes, obviously, would be wind and cold. Uh, inner causes would be, interestingly, would be emotions, especially anger. So that's something entirely new that comes in there. Uh, phlegm could be a symptom of an, a passion. And also, uh, although it's, of course, he, he defined wind and cold as outer causes of phlegm. The kind of phlegm we've been talking about so far, he defined all of that as neither inner nor outer. And then he sets out to describe clearly how phlegm was caused by outside, um, outside invaders. So in order to do that, he redefines or elaborates on the conception of pores. I, as I just mentioned, in the, in the earliest text, pores would, it would be very dangerous if pores were open because that would give a passageway for external in, intruders to come inside the body. But um, for Chen Yin, he says, if there's fire inside the body and the pores are closed, the fire gets trapped inside the body, stagnates, and causes phlegm. So in other words, rather than worrying about something coming in from the outside, he's worried about 
things not going, being able to go out. So he has turned two things completely on its head. Phlegm is no, now associated with fire rather than water, and the fear of an empty body which could be invaded by outside chi is supplemented by fear of a body that is congested with heat that cannot get out. So following the, 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 the trajectory of phlegm, we get to the next interesting um, figure. It's, um, um, it's also a physician and also an alchemist, uh, a Taoist practitioner, who um, wrote the first major treatise on phlegm in the history of Chinese medicine. So all the, what has been written on phlegm so far was we, we do get a lot of redefinition and things change, but the individual passages on phlegm are still fairly short. But this guy, he wrote a, a very long, substantial treatise on phlegm that doesn't resemble anything that was going on before. Completely new, completely original. It's just stunning. Um, the most striking thing about his treatise is actually his obsession with fecalia. Wang Gui was very idiosyncratic. So this kind of detailed description is very outlandish for Chinese medicine. Um, he's been influential. His, his writings on phlegm have been taken up by the later tradition, but this part is never included. It... <laughs> Um, another thing that is interesting about Wang Gui's treatise on phlegm is his mode of observation. So, as I said, the earlier phlegm was heard sloshing around the body. Uh, it was palpated as lumps or perceived as fullness in subjective experience. But this guy looks at phlegm as it appears in poo and um, dries it and, 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 and then reintroduces moisture. And, and, and it, it's just, it's, it's completely new. And com <laughs> <laughs> so although, granted, one way was a very original guy, but it's still very hard to believe that he could have all these ideas without any influence from another part of the world. How did he come up with all of this? Well, actually, the, the visual inspection of body fluids is a very um, well-known characteristic of Greek and Islamic medicine. So this picture shows the inspection of urine. It's a urinosc urinoscopy, which was widely practiced in, in the Greek and Islamic traditions. And, and we also know, of course, that the whole history of anatomy, people inspected things visually. Um, and apart from his mode of um, analysis, there are also an, a number of other telltale signs which suggest that Wang Gui 
was probably cognizant of the Greco-Islamic Greco medical tradition, which is, he talks about phlegm as uh, the stuff that comes from a leaking brain, which is exactly, the, it's exactly the same way that phlegm is talked about in, in the Greek uh, medical tradition. And he also defines lungs as a storehouse of phlegm. Remember, the lungs didn't have anything to do with phlegm in the early tradition. It was in the intestines. But for him, lungs become the storehouse of phlegm. He talks about salty taste of phlegm. And most interesting, he associates phlegm with corrupted blood. This is, 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 is really very, very comparable to, to Greek medicine and, and Islamic medicine. Um, The other thing that is very interesting about his treatise is his definition of phlegm as corrupted matter. So in other words, he is, the, the, the way of looking at phlegm stagnations as a kind of mechanical stagnation has changed to looking at it, in, at it in a kind of chemical way. So what happens to a body fluid when it stagnates? Well, it goes bad. Um, and that um, the general association of matter with um, putrefaction is also something that is very familiar to hist history of medicine or history of matter in the European tradition and very new to Chinese tradition. Um, so where could he have gotten this knowledge? Actually, it's not as, as unlikely as it may sound. He, he does, in his story of, of Phlegm, he, he reports a curious meeting with an, eye, with an eye doctor. So I don't know what to make of this story, but he, it doesn't have any function in his description of Phlegm. And we know that um, eye doctors in China were often Indians because the... Um, uh, they had a, the technique of cataract couching wasn't known to in Chinese medicine, but it was very it was widely practiced in in, in Indian medicine. And at that time, so he lives during the Yuan Empire. It would it would be very possible that Indian al alchemists would be wandering around in China, and he could have met them. But even more straightforward is actually the fact that in the Yuan dynasty, which was the Mongol dynasty, um, there was a large number of Persian practitioners in the capital, and there were translation of um, Persian texts, Persian medical treatises, that um, he, he <coughs> might very well have consulted to get this knowledge. So even later, Phlegm, that's late Qing Dynasty or, um, or in and the Republican period. Uh, phlegm becomes associated with tuberculosis, and then only then it gets associated with um, with the kind of phlegm you were probably thinking I was going to talk about. That is the phlegm, that the spitting type of phlegm, and snot. So. In short, um, so we have looked at the historical and conceptual trajectory of phlegm, which 
went from indigestion, not associated with lungs or with coughing, to an explosion of phlegm-related diseases. We saw that phlegm went from a, being a watery substance associated with cold to a solid substance that is prone to accumulations. And it also um, was reconceptualized from uh, the process of its stagnation was reconceptualized from a mechanical way of stagnating leading to obstructions to a kind of chemical understanding of stagnation leading to putrefaction. The fear of invasion of the body by external intruders was not supplanted by people continue to be afraid of wind and continue to be afraid of outside intruders, but it, it was um, supplemented by a fear of internal congestion by fire and by phlegm. The, the, the geographical trajectories of phlegm that we've looked at is a possible travel of Indic conceptions of phlegm via the Silk Road to China in the wake of Chinese Buddhist translations, and also a travel of Greco-Islamic conceptions of phlegm from the Persian Ilkhanate Empire to the, Chi to the Chinese Yuan Dynasty. We've also seen how all of this played out in somatic trajectories of flows of body fluids inside the body. So, by the Qing Dynasty, phlegm is seen as this kind of super pathogen, the root of all disease. And even today, it's, it's regarded as one of the most difficult to grasp concepts of Chinese medicine. This is because uh, phlegm is so many things at different times and constantly takes on, on new meanings without shedding its old meanings. The association of phlegm with fire did not mean that it ceased to be a symptom of, of cold. Due to the accrual of these different historical meanings, it could be both. So the association of phlegm with tuberculosis did not mean that it ceased to be a cause of indigestion and so forth. So by the time, by the Qing dynasty, we get, we, 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 we get phlegm to be all kinds of different things by a process of, we could term it accrual. And I hope that this little excursion into the history of phlegm has shown um, you how, how this all happened and also that you may have some different ideas of phlegm than you had before this talk. <laughs> Thank you very much.